Amen. Thank you, Didi, and welcome to all of you who are gathered here this morning, both inside and outside. Glad to be with you on this Palm Sunday morning as we enter into Holy Week. Um, The church has, for quite some time, set aside this week to focus our hearts and minds on the final week of Jesus' earthly life. And that week begins with Palm Sunday, named such for the palm fronds that Didi already mentioned that were laid on the road that Jesus traveled on his final journey into Jerusalem, which is what we will be studying and unpacking this morning. I want to invite you now, if you're able, to stand as is our custom here at Christ Central, as we give reverence to God's Word. Our scripture this morning comes from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 11. We'll be looking at verses 1 through 10. This is God's Word. Now when they, Jesus and his disciples, drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethpage and Bethany, At the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? Say, The Lord has need of it, and will send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street, And they untied it, and some of those standing there said to them, What are you doing untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. The prophet Isaiah says the grass withers and the flowers fade, but God's word endures forever. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your word. I believe your word is true. We thank you for this weighty text, this text that we come to every year on this Sunday. God, I pray that you would speak to us afresh through your word this morning, that we would see this Passion Week story in a new light, and through that we would encounter you, the living God, and be transformed. God, I pray that you would give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and hearts to understand. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. Now, I'm not proud of what I'm about to say, but I'm going to say it anyway. One of the greatest tools that you have as a parent is manipulation. Prospective parents, write that down. You see, your children are by nature naive. They don't know a whole lot. And as parents, you can really use that to your advantage. A great example of this is taking your child to the dentist for the first time. 
I can remember how this went for each of my children. Don't look down on me. All parents, even the most righteous ones, play these games. I was telling my child how exciting and fun it is to go to the dentist, how there's nothing to be afraid of and it's not going to hurt at all. You know, a whole bunch of lies that I was telling them. And the problem with this sort of manipulation is that it only works once. Because soon after your child has some data of their own, that data will either confirm or deny what you have told them. And then they'll use that data, unfortunately, to guide their expectations moving forward. Which is why after the first trip to the dentist, you go to what is the parent's last resort, which is bribery. Prospective parents, you should definitely write that down. What in the world does my child's first trip to the dentist have to do with Palm Sunday? Well, you see, Palm Sunday, what is often referred to as the triumphal entry, is a classic example of manipulation and misguided expectations. See, just like on my child's first trip to the dentist, the crowd had grossly inaccurate expectations about what was happening in the moment. Their behavior was was right on. They were right to be excited. They were right to show this man honor and reverence, and yet the motivation for this behavior was all wrong. What's the big deal? Who cares if they were appropriately excited but for all the wrong reasons? The problem is if, just like with my child's trip to the dentist, our expectations don't match reality, they don't last. That's what happens here. The text shows us a couple chapters later that this very same crowd, the crowd that was giving Jesus this raucous reception, they gathered again just a few days later, but this time not to honor and revere Jesus, but rather to call for his head. Crucify him, they said. That's why it's so important that our expectations are rooted in reality, rooted in the truth, or they won't last. So I want to begin this morning by asking the question, what is fueling your Easter excitement this year? Some of you, I imagine, are new or newish to the church, and you're thinking, what in the world is Easter excitement? And I'm so glad that you're here. This sermon is for you. Others of you may not be new to the church, but if you're honest in this season after this crazy year, there's not a whole lot of excitement about anything in you, much less some stupid holiday. That's where you're at. I'm glad you're here as well. This sermon is for you. And then there's others likely that are here that are genuinely excited about Easter, but maybe your excitement needs to be focused more on the truth. So glad that you're here also. This sermon is for you as well. There's two things I want us to look at this morning on Palm Sunday. First, I want to unpack for us these misguided expectations of the crowd. And then secondly, I want to present to you the appropriate expectations of a true follower of Christ as we enter into Holy Week. So let's begin. 
like I just stated, the crowd totally missed the boat here. Although their, their behavior, their actions were correct, their understanding of the moment was completely lacking. But you can't blame them fully because there was so much going on in this ride, both culturally and religiously. And so in order to help us kind of understand how the crowd missed it, I want to unpack for you what was going on in this moment in hopes that we won't make the same mistake that the crowd did on that day. So what was going on with this famous donkey ride? First, I want to engage the cultural components that were at play, and then we'll look at some of the religious nuance to the text. First thing that you need to recognize is that in the ancient Near Eastern culture, there was one person and one person only who always rode and never walked. You probably guess who that was, and that's the king. It's because in first century ancient Near East, it was believed to be beneath royalty to walk the dirty streets. But not only was it assumed that a king would ride and not walk, it was also the exclusive right of royalty to claim one's animal for royal business. Look at verse 3. Jesus says, If anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? Say, The Lord has need of it. Now what you may not recognize here is that livestock were most likely a person's most valuable possession. Their livelihood depended upon these animals. And so you didn't go around lending out your livestock. It was too risky, too costly, unless the king was in town. And if he requested your animals, by law you were required to obey. So you see, at first glance, Jesus' behavior seems rather insignificant to most of us, but to the crowd, there were red flags going off all over the place. But it wasn't just the cultural things that were at play. There was also a huge religious component to this ride. And that religious component references back to how the Old Testament spoke time and time again about this very special someone who was coming to rescue God's people. Listen to this prophecy that comes from King David, a prophecy that the words of verse 10 show us the people were keyed into. 2 Samuel chapter 7 says, When your days are fulfilled, this is God speaking to King David, says, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, when you die, David, I, God, will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. See, God's people had been waiting with bated breath for this special someone to come and establish this forever kingdom. And God went so far in the Old Testament as he gave his people clues so they wouldn't miss it. So they would know that this is the special someone and recognize when he came. And one of those clues is given to the prophet Zechariah. He says that this special someone will ride on a colt of a donkey, a colt that had never been ridden before. What a bizarre set of details that a prophet would give. But look again at our text. Jesus gives very specific instructions to his disciples. Verse 2, he said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied 
on which no one has ever sat. Church, don't miss this. Jesus had been walking for hundreds, if not thousands of miles. He always walked. Walking was not a big deal. And yet, for some reason in this moment, he chooses to stop when he's just two miles outside of town, and he sends his disciples in while he waits to go pick up this colt that's never before been ridden and bring it back to him. This behavior is beyond bizarre. As one commentator says, Jesus' actions here are simply not normal, but rather they are full of royal overtones. The message that Jesus is seeking to deliver here is clear. On this ride, he was declaring to the crowd that he was, in fact, this special someone who was coming to rescue God's people, that he was the long-awaited-for king. And clearly the, cl- the crowd gets it. They recognize the, the not-so-subtle overtones, and so they respond accordingly. They throw their coats over the animal because a royal would never ride bareback, and they, they lay their coats on the ground, and, and when they run out of coats, they rip the palm fronds off of the palm trees and laid them down as well because the king was so special, so important, that it wasn't right for the horse's hooves to touch the ground. You see, the people are rolling out a giant red carpet for this king. Verse 10 says that they're shouting at the top of their lungs. And in Matthew's account, it says that the whole city was stirred. The Greek word that is used here for for stirred is seismos. We get the English word seismic from this word. Matthew is saying the whole city literally shook with excitement. What a worthy reception for a king, right? And yet, for some reason, this response, this honor, this reverence for this man didn't even last a week. Help me, Pastor, what is going on here? See, the crowd, they were right to be excited about the arrival of this new king and a new kingdom. The problem is they had a total wrong view of what kind of king Jesus was and the nature of the kingdom that he was bringing. And the point that we need to hear there, church, is if we don't have an understanding that is accurate of what kind of king Jesus is and what his kingdom is all about, our excitement around this king won't last either. And their error was... Their perspective was way too small and way too short-sighted. I realize I'm overusing the dentist illustration, but I'm going to do it anyway. I want you to think about something. The reason why my kids hate going to the dentist is because it's uncomfortable. It sometimes hurts. Not always the case, but oftentimes dentists don't learn how to relate well to children in dental school, so it's kind of awkward. But in order to avoid the dentist altogether, you have to have a perspective that is both small and short-sighted. Because if you avoid the dentist, yes, you will avoid about an hour or so of discomfort, but you will be missing the big picture, right? The dentist helps you to avoid very painful cavities that are destined to come if you don't go there. And if you think long-term, Going to the dentist will allow you to eat things like steak until you're old and gray. See, the crowd, when Jesus declared himself to be king, 
what that meant to them was very small and very short-sighted. They recognized that Jesus was going to come and rescue his people, but they thought that that meant Jesus was going to overthrow the current king and that Jesus was going to in turn shower them with material blessings in the moment, in the here and now. That was their expectation for King Jesus. And so then Jesus gets arrested, and and obviously he can no longer provide these things for them. He has nothing left to offer, and so they bailed. I wonder how many of us relate to Jesus in a similar way at times. We celebrate him only to the extent that he makes our life more comfortable, more prosperous, more satisfying. And then when life gets hard, we, we run from him because he's not holding up his end of the bargain in terms of making our life grand. Church, what the good news is that Jesus has a far greater and far longer-lasting plan in mind. He didn't come to take out a single earthly leader at a singular moment in history in a specific part of this giant world. He had something huge in mind. Which brings us to our second point this morning. What are the appropriate expectations of a follower of Christ as we enter into Holy Week? I'm not going to be long here, but what I'm about to say is pretty awesome. And if it's true, and if you believe it, it will fuel the kind of excitement that we see here in Mark 11, a seismic excitement. But the good news about this excitement is it won't last for a few days, but rather if and when we believe this, it will bring an excitement, a joy, a hope that will last a lifetime. So what kind of king is King Jesus? I want you to think as though you live in a monarchy, which is hard for most of us. What, what exactly is the role of a king? What is a king supposed to do for his people? The answer is, it's really just two things, two, two simple things. The king is to conquer the enemies of the kingdom and to prosper his people. That's the king's job. So step one, conquer the enemies of the kingdom. And you can see here how the crowd missed it because they thought the enemy was Caesar. And so Jesus is going to conquer Caesar and then life's going to be great. But actually, Jesus had his eyes set on a far greater enemy. He was after the big three, not the this is us big three. Jesus is going after sin, Satan, and death. Jesus came to conquer these three enemies, and and the good news for us is that through his death and resurrection, he actually did it. He actually accomplished this victory. This is why the Apostle Paul, he sings this song when he thinks about the resurrection of Christ. He says, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? It's almost as if Paul is, is mocking Satan in that statement. Because Satan's greatest weapon was because of our sin that death would entail separation from God, eternal separation, Isaiah 59, 2. But your sins have made a separation between you and your God. Your sins have hidden his face from you. But the good news is on the cross, Jesus stole that weapon from Satan. 
the famous verse that many probably have memorized as a helpful reminder here. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son so that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. But that's why the crowd, they missed it. They thought Jesus was going after Caesar, and, and when, Caesar was a, when Jesus was arrested, they figured he had lost. If only they had known that it was through Jesus' arrest, through his horrific death, that he would claim the greatest victory of all for all who believe in him. Clearly, Jesus fulfilled the first role of a king. He whooped the greatest enemies of his kingdom on the cross. But what about the second role of the king? To prosper his people. Again, it's hard to blame the crowd on this one. Life was really hard in first century Israel. The Roman Empire was harsh and oppressive, especially to Jews. And they had likely read and memorized most of these prophecies about this coming king. And they would have expected that this king was going to offer some sort of wealth, security, status, things that they've never known before but dreamed of. But here again, they missed it because their vision was so small and short-sighted. Jesus' plan was far bigger than some wealth or some status or some prosperity. And thank goodness that's the case. We all, all we have to do is look at the lives of the uber-wealthy to know how small and short-sighted that would have been if that was what Jesus gave. But that's not why Jesus came. As one commentator states, Jesus came not to bring health and wealth, but rather to fully and perfectly restore what had been so severely distorted by the fall in Eden. Jesus comes to right everything that is wrong, fix everything that is broken, to make this whole world new. That's the glorious gift of the resurrection. And it's that kind of reality that cultivates in us this seismic excitement because it means that that, that this kingdom that Jesus inaugurated that we get to be a part of is going to make everything that is broken go away. Poverty, sickness, racism, sex trafficking, homelessness, joblessness, educational inequity, gender inequality, murder, suicide, addiction, and the like. Christ's kingdom is about putting an end to all of that. That is worth rejoicing and celebrating. And shameless plug, this, this week we're going to be looking at how Christ accomplishes that work. So I encourage you to come on Good Friday and Easter as we dive deeper into the amazing work that Christ accomplished on our behalf. But for now, on this Palm Sunday, I want us just to sit in that. Sit in that reality that on Palm Sunday when Jesus hopped on that donkey, he revealed his rescue plan to the world, his plan to rule and reign over all creation with justice and goodness and truth. And through his death and resurrection, he did it. It is finished. Jesus won. And so I encourage you as we press into Holy Week, let our hearts and minds be focused on this great king and his glorious kingdom. And, and when we see it rightly, our expectations go through the roof and this Easter excitement will truly mirror the glory 
of this unparalleled moment in history. Would you pray with me? Father, it's hard in this season for all of us to kind of look beyond all of the painful and scary and difficult things that are going on in our lives and the world around us. It's hard to be excited about anything. And yet, God, you have given us something that is most worthy of our excitement, of our celebration. And that is that your son, Jesus Christ, has come. And that he won a great victory over sin, over death, over Satan, for us. God, help us to sit in that reality this week. And may it blow our minds and enliven our hearts. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.